Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Everyone knows that once upon a time, there were nine muses. They were known as the daughters of Zeus and wise men loved them for they bestowed the gift of genius. Sing in me, O muse, cried Homer, and the muses answered, filling his voice and spinning out his mortal talents to make immortal tales. What not everyone knows is that once there existed another sister who chose a different path. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Catherine Chung about her beautiful novel, The Tenth Muse. Catherine's protagonist, also named Catherine, but spelled with a K, is older and thinks that everyone is waiting for her to die. She's in her late 70s, but she's found a possible key now to unlock one of the great mysteries of mathematics, known as Riemann's hypothesis, which predicts a meaningful pattern hidden in the seemingly chaotic distribution of primary numbers. Her discovery, she says, is rooted in the work of Jewish mathematician Emmy Nather, who was the first of the University of Göttingen's mathematicians to lose her job when the Nazis took over and gutted the math department. All these years later, Catherine feels drawn to that city where there had once been so much potential. Hi, Kathy. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galit. Thanks so much for having me on. So how did you decide to combine your love of math with your passion for writing? And how did you come to write this beautiful novel? Oh, so... You know, I knew that I wanted to be a writer from the time that I was about seven years old. And studying math in college was really a detour for me. Um, I had thought when I was when I was younger that I hated math um, and that I, I wanted to take as little of it as possible. And then when I went to college, I took this class called Real Number Analysis that sort of opened my eyes to how beautiful it could be. And I learned how to do proofs, which was not something that I had done very much of before. And it struck me as sort of like incredibly poetic, actually. Mathematics seemed incredibly poetic in its expression. Um, in math, sort of mathematicians talk about a proof being beautiful. They say a, ma- a proof can be beautiful or useful, but the more important thing is the beauty. And um, it, it appealed to me. And so I think, you know, it was sort of this four-year detour that I took in life. And And then once I became a writer, it was something that sort of informed the way that I thought about what beauty is, how I saw the world. And so it seemed inevitable that it would work its way into my writing. Um, In terms of this novel, I came to write this novel because, um, you know, when I published my first book, I was sort of disheartened, I guess, as a young author at the way that young women were kind of treated in in not just the publishing world, but just, you know, in the world at large, right? It was sort of my coming of age, I guess. And 
I remember being encouraged not to be too intellectual um, and being told, you know, the, the, the most important thing as a writer is, is that you want to be liked. And it seemed to me that these sort of pieces of advice were extremely gendered. And I thought, well, the next book I write, I want to write about a woman intellectual. And um, I started reading about these women mathematicians who had sort of against all obstacles sort of transcended sort of the enormous limitations of the times that they lived in. And I grew very inspired and I thought, okay, this, this is the thing that I want to write about next. Hmm. Why did you name your protagonist Catherine, which is remarkably similar to your name, although spelled with a K? So that was something that I actually came to regret a little bit, I think, because when I did it, it was sort of an inside joke with myself and nobody else. Um, When I published my first book, everybody thought it was autobiographical, even though I said it's not autobiographical. And um, I so when I started writing this book, which is about, you know, a mathematical genius in her late 70s, I thought no one will possibly think this is autobiographical. But what I did instead, I realized later, is I gave everybody the perfect reason to ask me, are you hinting that this book is somehow autobiographical by giving her the, the same name as, as myself? But there's another small reason that I did this. And it's that when I was growing up, I loved Anne of Green Gables. It was one of my favorite books when, when I was young. And Anne of Green Gables said this thing that sort of was a dagger through my heart. And what she said to a character named Catherine with a K was, she said, well, at least you're Catherine with a K because those Catherines whose names are spelled with a C are just insufferable. <laughs> it's a heart and it sort of always stuck with me. And I've always wondered, you know, who are these glamorous, you know, superior beings named Catherine with a K. And so it also felt like the opportunity to explore somebody um, who, you know, embodied all of these things that I, I had imagined Catherine with a K to be. Mm-hmm. But she also wanted, was desperate to have an E at the end of her name. So names were a big deal to her. Oh, yes, yes. And of course. So growing up in Virginia, Catherine knows that she's different. People are always asking where she's from, but her parents don't tell her anything. Um, Could you talk more about prejudice in that area or at that time? What was going on? Um, So when Catherine is growing up, she's the only only biracial girl that she knows in the town where she's growing up in Michigan. And she's also the only Asian person that she knows aside from her mother. And so I think it was a very difficult situation for her and for her parents. You know, they were sort of the first. And it's always sort of confusing to know, I think, when you're different, how much of the reaction that you get in the world is directed towards you personally um, because of who you are as, as an individual and how much of it is directed towards you because, um, you know, you're biracial or because your mother is Asian, or because your father is a war hero, or because you're maybe smarter than people think you should be. You know, how much of the reaction is because you're a girl as opposed to a boy. And so these are the sorts of things that Catherine is trying to sift through. And she doesn't really have a model of someone who came before her who was dealing with these things. Her mother is Chinese, but she wasn't born in America. So she's a foreigner. So there's already this sort of difference between them as well. And so Catherine 
I think, feels very much on her own. Mm -hmm. She knows she's smart. Why don't her parents defend her when the teacher punishes her for figuring out a complex math problem in her head? Oh, you know, that question, Galit, I feel like if we could answer that question, we could solve so much that's wrong with the world. (laughs) Um, I think that her parents don't defend her to her teacher in part because her mother is a foreigner and her mother doesn't speak English that well. And so her mother isn't sort of in a position, right, to um, to defend her daughter or to sort of take that authority as the parent in that way. And her father, I think, you know, is also from a different time and a different generation. And because of sort of the context that they're living in, I think maybe everybody sort of agrees just because of convention that maybe Catherine shouldn't be um, so forward in her answers, right? Her parents are very concerned about her sort of getting along. And I think that her mother says to her in the book something, something like, try your best, um, but, but, you know, also don't, don't say too much. And Catherine understands the difficulty of that because she says, you know, but my best is the thing that gets me in trouble. So there's this this kind of contradiction in what she's being told by her parents. But I I think it's common, you know, even, even now that children get sort of mixed messages where parents both want their children to excel, but also, you know, not to stick out in any way Mm -hmm. that might bring unwarranted attention. Mm -hmm. Can you say more about the notebook that her father gives her when she's a child? Oh, so Catherine is given a notebook by her father that he picked up as sort of a relic during his time in World War II. So it's filled with math equations and numbers, and it's filled with, you know, some words, but they're all in German. And so for Catherine, I think that this notebook comes to represent in some way, um, you know, everything that she doesn't know about her father. Um, and the experiences that he's had. And she doesn't know why he gives it to her. So it's imbued with this kind of secret meaning, right? She, and so I think that this notebook is also invested with an enormous amount of sort of emotional longing, if you will, because she wants to be close to her parents. She doesn't really know who they are or why they have the kinds of relationships that they do with one another. And so the notebook becomes sort of this talisman and it's, it's a gift that was given to her that she, she thinks holds these secrets, but she can't really begin to imagine what those secrets are. Mm-hmm. At Purdue, Catherine is intrigued with mathematics, and she makes a friend. Can you say more about their relationship? So when Catherine goes to a university, to, to Purdue University for the first time, she hasn't had a lot of friends, and she's been discouraged, I guess, in her intellectual pursuits up until then. And she's studied very much on her own. And I think it's this liberating moment when suddenly people are talking about the things that she's been waiting her whole life to talk about and that she gets to learn about the things she's been curious about her whole life. And she meets a boy and the boy shares her interests. And he's from a completely different background. He's totally sure of himself in this way that she's always longed to be sure of herself. And he befriends her. And so I think it's this sort of exhilarating, sort of romantic, um, head over heels moment for her where 
you know, I, I guess we were just talking about the notebook. I think Catherine has this habit of investing people and things with a tremendous amount of her sort of like expectations and hopes. And so this is the relationship she developed in college. And of course, um, she idealizes it in a way that maybe the relationship can't handle, that maybe this, this boy that she comes to adore isn't completely worthy of that adoration. Hmm. It was a sad story. She, Catherine, recalls, so she's telling the story from now or from 2019, remembering back. And she recalls a story in 2005 when she was asked to react to the very obnoxious talk given in real life by Lauren Summers, who was then president of Harvard University. Can you tell, talk more about that? Although I remember it and explain why Catherine acknowledges that she was not the only woman who felt alone in her career back then. So when Lauren Summers gave that talk in 2005, I was just a couple years out of college. And in his talk, for people who you know don't remember it or, or weren't around, um, what he said was, he said something along the lines of, you know, maybe women just lack the gene to be able to do science. And the shocking thing for me, actually, when I remember that speech is that I, I was a math major. I, you know, I got a degree in mathematics and then I went on to work at a think tank um, doing econometrics. And so I had sort of fully lived in this world in a way. And it hadn't occurred to me, honestly, until that moment when Lauren Summers gave that speech, how sort of messed up um, in some ways towards women the academy had been. And, you know, it, it was this moment when, when I was in college, I noticed, for instance, that I only ever had one or two other girls in my math classes. I, I must have known that all of my professors were men and that I never had a single female professor in mathematics while I was in university, um, and that in fact all of my TAs were also men, but somehow I didn't notice it consciously, if that makes sense, right? And so Lauren Summers gives this speech that, that is sort of blatant enough, right? He, he says in words this thing that I, that I think was, was assumed, um, but it wasn't until he said these things that I realized how much this attitude sort of shaped my experience. And, um, you know, I wanted, I guess, to address it sort of head on in this book um, and to, to call it out in a way and to have Catherine respond because she's also much older. And so for me, I guess I had, um, I guess I had lived through a life where I didn't expect the president of Harvard to be giving this speech, right? Whereas Catherine was born into a world where there are no other expectations except for the president of Harvard to be giving this speech. And so um, that, that was why I chose to include it. I think that I might have forgotten the second part of your question, Galit. Why, she, why does she acknowledge, how does she know this, that she was not the only woman who felt alone in her career? So I think that, you know, I spoke to a lot of women who were about Catherine's age when I was writing this book. And I was struck at how, how much of a part, a kind of loneliness played into a lot of the stories that they told. But also, I was struck, I guess, also by how 
um, they seemed not to be totally aware of their loneliness until they were looking back at their experience, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that that was such a sort of pivotal part of Catherine's life and what it also means to have a career, you know, in a field where there aren't very many women or there aren't very many people who look like you or have your background, right? The way in which you can be sidelined um, or discounted. And so it, I guess it was another moment where I felt that the Lawrence Summers speech would trigger that kind of response in Catherine, where she looks back and, and understands how this attitude has shaped her entire experience, including making it difficult for her to connect with other people who are going through this thing, in part because there were so few women, right? But also just in part because of how expected it was that there would be so few women. Mm-hmm. What What's the significance of the Kuan Yin story that Catherine's mother tells her? And why does she remember it for the rest of her life? So the story of Kuan Yin is a, is a Buddhist East Asian story about a... Um, about a princess who's who's offered a kingdom and refuses and is eventually put to death. And um, when she is um, when she is killed, and the reason that she refuses the kingdom is she says that she wishes to sort of practice as a nun and achieve enlightenment. And when she's put to death, you know, she's offered this place in heaven. And she refuses the place in heaven because she says that she'll remain on earth, you know, sort of helping people and that she won't she won't leave suffering behind until she has alleviated suffering for everyone who suffers and this was actually a story that I grew up with you know I was raised Buddhist and when I was writing this book I really wanted I guess for the eastern traditions of storytelling that I came from to be interacting with the Western tradition of storytelling that I also grew up with. And I wanted both sides to be reflected in how Catherine thought of the world as well. And because this was a formative story of my life, but also because I guess to me, it also, it also is emblematic of a kind of tension um, in Catherine's life where, you know, her mother has sort of sacrificed so you know so much of her own life uh, for her family, and I think that Catherine feels that she has this choice in life to either sacrifice herself for other people or to sort of claim right this future for herself that she wants. And so throughout the book, she's sort of always balancing these two impulses and trying to figure out what the right answer is. By the end of the book, and I don't think I'm giving anything away by telling you this, but by the end of the book, I think Catherine comes to realize that she, what she's always seen as an either or choice isn't a matter of, you know, choosing one side or the other, but maybe of trying to integrate or balance these two mm-hmm. different um, ways so of thinking the, about things. The, sorry, the, Quin, the Quan Yin story has something to do with the 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 story of the Tenth Muse. The, can you talk a bit about the title of your book? Sure. Um, so the Tenth Muse gets its title from another story, which is the story of the Tenth Muse, which is one that I made up, but is based on the Nine Muses. Um, 
you know, when I was setting out to write this book, I was thinking a lot about how in writing a story about a woman who sort of transcends what's expected of her in life, that I wanted to break out from these sort of mental limitations of my own about what I thought a woman was capable of. It was really strange because when I started writing this book, it, it started out from the point of view of a man. And um, the man who was telling this story was this man who had been lo in love with you know, a really famous mathematician. And 60 pages in, I thought, why in this book that I started writing to, you know, about, about a, a woman intellectual and is it being narrated by a man? And so then I started over again, but in the second iteration, Catherine was a math historian. She was a failed mathematician writing the stories of these other women mathematicians. And I thought, why do I keep sort of getting in my own way um, when it comes to the story that I set out to tell. And I realized that it was because, you know, as, as ambitious as I was about what I wanted to do, there were, there were still these ceilings in my own mind that made, that were holding me back from imagining the life of this woman, even though she was fictional. And so I thought, my God, it would be so nice if in this moment I could just call out to the muses, you know, in the way that Homer did or Dante did. And um, as I sat there thinking about that, I realized how strange that would be also to call out to, to these women, to these female deities who actually made their entire existence about helping mortal geniuses do what they wanted to do. And I thought, no, if I'm going to call out to the muses, what I'm going to do instead is to... Um, is to let them rest. You know, I won't ask them to help me. I'll, I'll tell them a story. And so the story I ended up telling for them was the story of the 10th muse, who was the 10th sister, who decided that she didn't want to be a muse at all. She wanted to go to earth and become a story and to sing her own songs and to tell the stories that she wanted to, to tell. And um, so that's where the 10th muse came from. I loved that part. Um, Catherine works on some real mathematical problems, but you mentioned in the afterward that you invented some of the problems, like the Mohanty problem that doesn't really exist, right? So yeah. how does one invent a mathematical problem? Oh, Galid, it was so hard. It was really very difficult. I mean, I had to invent a problem because she's working on the Riemann hypothesis, which is arguably, you know, the most famous, or at least certainly one of the most famous unsolved mathematical problems of our time. And, um, you know, if she's going to make any progress on it, it had to be made up because I, it was beyond, it was beyond the scope of my ability to actually make progress on the Riemann hypothesis um, in order to write this novel. So I read a lot. I, I read a lot of biographies of people who worked on the, the Riemann hypothesis. I, um, I read a lot of biographies about just mathematicians in general. I read more mathematical articles than I could understand. And I began to sort of, I guess, develop an idea of an approach that someone might take that could work. And then I wrote to five different mathematicians that I knew and har harassed them, and they helped me out. Oh, God, that was really impressive. Um why did 
Catherine's father waits so long to tell her the entire truth? So Catherine's father waits a long time to tell Catherine the truth of sort of who she is and what their relationship is to one another. I think in part because she comes into his life in such a traumatic and unexpected way that when, you know, when they're, when he's raising her, it's sort of a, a survival um, mechanism just to deal with the issues at hand, if that makes sense. And having become a mother, actually, after I wrote this book or in, in while writing this book, I understand now just how little you know about what you're doing as a parent at any given time. You know, the, the, the moment that you think that you figure out what your kid is doing, she's on to the next thing. And so I, I think part of it is that Catherine's father didn't really have time to sit down and think about how to tell her the truth. I think, you know, but the other really big reason is that he was afraid. He was afraid about changing their relationship. He was afraid of making her sad. Um, I also think that both of their histories are sort of huge histories and the way that they tie into World War II, you know, it's a lot to process. And I think that he didn't fully understand actually her story. And the reason that he tells her is that he has a heart attack and realizes that he doesn't have a lot of time and they've grown sort of estranged. And he realizes that part of their estrangement part of what makes it very difficult for them to be close is that she doesn't know the truth and she's always felt this kind of withholding from him. And so he decides to give her what she needs. Oh, it was a beautiful book. So what are you working on next? So I've just started researching for my next novel and my Books change so much while I'm writing them that I don't want to lead you astray with a false description. But I can tell you that I'm reading about trees and forests. Um, I'm reading a book called How Forests Think. And I'm also reading about forest monks who are monks that spend their lives walking through forests doing walking meditation. Mm, so we're going to guess based on what you're reading what's going to happen. <laughs> okay. Yes, and I mean, I'm going to guess based on what I'm reading, what's going to happen. So I, I should say that I'm going in without a plan. Um, all I have is, I guess, a sort of curiosity about the, these two things. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for joining me today, Kathy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I've been talking with Catherine Chung about her novel, The Tenth Muse. Hope all of you listeners are able to lose yourself in a good book today and tomorrow too. Happy reading.